Now, the line to enter Barcelona's most famous church often stretches around the block. There are a lot of Gothic churches you could visit in Spain, but, but this one is different. It, it doesn't quite look like an ordinary Gothic church. It looks like it was built out of bones or, or sand. It's, it's, it's organic. An architect describes the Sagrada Familia church. He says it's spiky, fanciful, a mud-like castle of swirling towers and twisting columns. Now, the lines to get into this church, millions see it every year. It, it, it stretches around the block, not only because of the beauty of the construction, but because, well, the project has gone on a really long time. The construction itself is part of the attraction. The foundation stones for this building were laid in 1882. Only a small portion of the building was completed when the original architect, Antonio Gaudi, died in 1926. And that wasn't a great time for Spain, and so during the Spanish Civil War, most of his models and drawings were lost, and so people assumed that the building would just stop. Only a few photos, some basic drawings in, in Gaudi's journals survived. But, but architects decided that the, this great and glorious church must continue to be built, and so the work continues. It's the world's longest currently running construction project. Now, they hope to have the major work completed soon, in 2026, which will be the 100th anniversary of the architect's death. That means they hope to have completed this in only 144 years years. Now, the construction has pressed on through numerous obstacles, through world wars, through trauma. The current designers are trying to make sense of the original designers' plans. Now, we all know that delays are to be expected in construction. And the people of Israel, as they return, the turn to their homeland, as they return from exile, they face great obstacles. And they're trying to return to the original plan of God, not merely to construct a building, but to be brought back into relationship with God. The temple, the place where God would meet with them. And so in the years that it took, yes, it won't take us quite as long as it's taken the church in Barcelona to be built. But in the decades that it took the people to rebuild the temple, they witnessed the faithfulness of God. You can see that they're trying to get back to God's original plans. And so let's just, let's just set the, the stage quickly. Look back at chapter 4, verse 1. They are building a temple for the Lord, for Yahweh, their covenant God, the God of Israel. They are, even in chapter 4, reluctant to let their enemies come and help. Now that makes sense because they're introduced to us as enemies, so we know that they're not really there to help. But they, they, they won't take help from, from the, the people of the land, the people that have wrongly been worshiping God at this place, because they, they don't want to distort true worship. You see, it's not that they're not willing to get help. They'll later take all kinds of help from Cyrus and Darius. They'll let the king of Assyria, the king of the Medes and Persians, pay for the whole project. But they want to keep God's place pure. Because this is the place in which God himself will dwell. This is the place where they will bring sacrifices to be purified, to have their sins forgiven. Now, we skipped most of, of, of chapter 5, 
which was the letter that the officials wrote complaining about the work being done. And so since I read you most of, of Darius's response, we, we skipped most of chapter 5. But, but look at verse 12 with me in chapter 5. As the people of Israel have described why they were exiled, we see God's plans even in their removal from the land and being brought back. And so when, when Tatnai sends the letter to King Darius, he includes the description in chapter 5, verse 12 of, of the work of God. The people of Israel said, but because our fathers angered the God of heaven, God handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild the house of the Lord. You see, the people understand that that their removal was because of their sin. The destruction of the first temple built by Solomon was because of their sin, but their return is because of God's grace and provision. And so even in the face of great opposition to their work, the enemies that arrive in chapter 4, that that are there, chapter 4, verse 4, to discourage them, to make them afraid, the people press on. Now the rest of chapter 4 actually jumps a, a, a generation ahead in the timeline, it's just what, what Ezra is doing is he's gathering the opposition. He's, he's making a theological argument and saying, this didn't just happen before I arrived during the time of Zerubbabel. This has happened throughout. Not only when we tried to rebuild the altar, but rebuild the temple, but even when we tried to rebuild the rest of the city, there was opposition throughout. And then when in, in chapter 5, when we meet Tatnai, the governor of Trans-Euphrates, and that just means that everything on the other side of the Euphrates from the capital city so everything west of the Euphrates was, was one big province. And so, so here comes this, this authority figure who, who's not introduced to us like the enemies in chapter 4 were introduced. He, he may merely be there as a building inspector, as somebody trying to make sure he can report back to the king what's going on. But he's trying to stop them because he doesn't know who authorized the work. A bureaucrat checking the building permits wants to to stop everything. And yet, what what these chapters show us, what the book of Ezra as a whole shows us, is God's overwhelming provision in the face of opposition. And it should give us hope that just as God provided for his people, his church, here in the time of, of Ezra, then God will provide for us. And so let's spend most of our, our time this morning looking at the provision of God. Look again at chapter 5, verse 1. We're introduced to to characters who, if you've read the table of contents in your Bible, you've already learned their names, Haggai and Zechariah. Now, that gets into the part of of kids when you memorize your, your, your books of the Bible so that you can flip to them. This gets to the part where you start mumbling because you realize, oh, wait, all these, all these prophets' names start to sound alike, and how do I, how do I keep them in order? But Haggai and Zechariah were were prophets sent by God, raised up by God during the time of this return from the exile to offer words of hope and encouragement to the people. God is offering his word to his people. And do you see what, what, what God is telling us? Is that despite the chaos in your life, despite the fact that that the work God has given you sometimes doesn't seem to to be succeeding. Don't trust what other people say. Listen to the word of God. 
See, and we're so tempted when we, when we face opposition to, to let the opponents, let their voice be the only one that we hear. And yet, what is God doing? He's sending his prophets to speak louder than the enemies of God, to encourage the people of, of Israel in their work. And it's a biblical truth for us that we need to trust in God's word in the face of opposition. Because we, we live at a time, just as, as the people in the time of Ezra, when the world is set against the purposes of God. Now, I don't just mean because the early 21st century is a, is a time in which people have purposefully set themselves up against God, although they have. I mean it because we live in a world where people are sinners. At every point in history, people have set themselves up against the true God. And so we can either choose to listen to the, the cultural expectations to bend ourselves to that or to really listen to the Word of God. And so perhaps today, a day in which the church celebrates the sanctity of human life Sunday, a day in which there's a, a bulletin insert with the, the picture of a beautiful child. We live in a culture where, where we're told that the, the choice to end a pregnancy should not be made by anyone except the mother. You know, the Word of God tells us that, that the child is made in God's image and has value and purpose. And so we as a church join with a door of hope in praying for mothers and vulnerable children. Today is the 15th birthday of my little girl. And can think back to those moments holding her when she, when she was so little, and, and I would get the, the late night shift, and she was born in Jan Well, obviously, it's January. Today's her birthday. And so the only thing that would be on late at night were, were NBA, West Coast NBA basketball games. So she has watched so many Lakers and, and, and Trailblazers games because I, I, would, I would hold her. And when you hold a baby and you see the face of a child, then you know that this is one made by God to be loved. See, and that's the picture that you and I as a church need to offer to the world a counterbalance. And, and, and I'm not merely trying to make a political statement, although this obviously does spill over into politics. I'm making a theological statement, a, a claim about what is true in reality, that every child is precious in the sight of God because every child is made by God. And so we as a church need to come alongside women in vulnerable situations to give them opportunity to make a choice of hope and life. And yet it's not merely in, in these political moments that, that we face opposition. I mean, think of the, 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 the temptations that, that face every one of us in terms of, of sexual ethics. We live in a world that tells us just, just do whatever feels right. As long as it's, you know, with someone who's consenting, who, who can consent, then, then just do whatever you want. And yet the Bible offers us a, a contrast. And, and the book of Ezra will actually make a, a point about, about morality that we'll see in, in coming weeks. But we live in a, a culture where we as Christians, if we are extravagant in our giving, in, in our monetary support of missions, that looks like foolishness. And yet rather than, than listen to the opposition, we need to trust the Word of God. You and I as Christians have good news, and yet we fear sharing it because people might think, well, you know, I, I mean, that works for you, but not for me. And yet we've been given hope that there is salvation through the work of God, and we hesitate to share it. Will you trust in God's word in the face of opposition? See, there is no place for discouragement or despair within God's church. 
I don't mean that everything is going to go well. Most of what you read here in the book of Ezra, things are not actually going very well. And yet, God will keep his purposes. God will be at work. And I don't mean for faith church. I don't mean for you that you as an individual believer won't face any opposition. I mean that God's promises stand for his church, that his church will not fail, that its purposes will succeed, that when we strive after the purposes of God of making his name known, then we can't fail. And so we should not succumb to despair. We should not step away from from opposition, but with hope and joy, speak gospel truth. God sends Haggai and Zechariah, and and in in chapter 5, verse 2, we're told that the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Does the Word of God bring you comfort and help? Does the Word of God bring you guidance and instruction? Or have you already, only halfway through the first month of your reading program, given up? Will we listen and read and study the Word of God to find hope and truth? See, but not only does God provide them with his word through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, we're again in in verse 2 of chapter 5 introduced to Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Now, if you've been here in the last couple of weeks, then then these names are becoming familiar because they are names that are repeated again and again here in in the opening chapters of Ezra's book. Zerubbabel is the descendant of David. David, the great king of Israel, it was his son Solomon who built the temple. And now a great, 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 and add a few more great, grandson has returned. Jeshua is the grandson of the last high priest who entered the temple of Solomon. And he is here provided by God. They are setting about the work of rebuilding the house of God. And and when we connect all the names that we have here, Haggai and Zechariah and, and, and Zerubbabel and Jeshua, then, then we're reminded that of, of the work of God, that God is the one who has a, is at work. And so you can keep your finger here. We're going to come back to, to Ezra. But, but go with me to the book of Zechariah. Now you're going to have to do that work of finding this little book that, that comes before the, the New Testament. But, but turn with me to Zechariah chapter 4. Because God, through the the words of Zechariah, reminds us that Zerubbabel, as a descendant of David, has the promises of God resting upon him. He is, the, 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 the promise of the Messiah holds true because Zerubbabel is still here. God has kept the promise that he would, that David would have a descendant on his throne. And so when we turn to Zechariah chapter 4, we have a, a vision that Zechariah has, but, but he explains to us who Zerubbabel is, how God will use him. In Zechariah chapter 4, we read in verse 6, speaking of Zerubbabel, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. This is Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, almighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you'll become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord almighty has sent me to you. 
Do you hear the promise? God is sending Zerubbabel for the work of rebuilding this temple. It will be accomplished. But do you hear the, the promises are even bigger? That it's, it's before Zerubbabel that mountains will be knocked down, that the way of the Lord will be paved smooth. These are the words that are applied to the ministry of Jesus, the great, 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 great grandson of David. And how will God do it? It's not by Zerubbabel's might. It's not by Zerubbabel's power, but by the Spirit of God Almighty. And so when you hear Zerubbabel's name, it's a promise that God will accomplish his purpose by the power of his spirit through his word spoken by the prophets. God is giving the church everything she needs to, to finish the work. The word of God, the spirit of God, the power of God. And then you see when we, when we return to, to Ezra in chapter 6 that God can work in the hearts of the, the most powerful and the hearts of the ordinary. The Tatnai is trying to figure out, are they allowed to keep building this temple? And so he sends a, a letter back to, to Darius, King Darius, whose empire stretches into Greece all the way to the edges of India, a, a man who has conquered most of the, the, the known world. They, King Darius issues a decree that, okay, well, let's find the, the written report. God is working through Darius, the king of Babylon, the king of the Medes and Persians. And then look at chapter 6, verse 2. After Darius orders that the, the archives be searched, look at, look at verse 2. A scroll was found in the city of Ecbatana in the province of Media. And now, the, the King Darius basically spent his year traveling between three major cities in his empire. And so Ecbatana is in, in, is in northwest Iran today. It's part of his Persian Median Empire. And he spent his summers there in the mountains. But you see, what, what has God done? God had Cyrus, the king before Darius, send this decree throughout his empire. The decree that, that, that the people of Israel were allowed to rebuild their temple. And somebody filed it in a cabinet somewhere in the, the archives of Ecbatana, and Darius orders that search all the archives. And so some archivist is searching in the citadel of Ecbatana and comes across the memoranda. See, someone had sent the letter, someone had stored the letter, and now somebody has to go find this letter. But God knew the letter was there. God can work through big and small ways, through the, the ordinary, through the the bureaucracies of the world to accomplish his purposes. Now, when Laura and I first got married, I needed a job because one of the things her parents told me was, you have to provide for her. And so I applied for, I, I was still a student, but I applied for a, for a job working the, the late night shift at UPS. I you know, was young and fit, and so I, you know, they made me move some stuff, and they, they made me count boxes, and they, they made me tell whether or not I was going to steal stuff from them. And and then I never got a call back. And I thought, well, that's really discouraging. I thought I was well qualified for this job. I, I don't get the job. Well, well, just a couple of days later, I get a report from one of my professors saying, hey, I've got a great job that's opened up for you in this Presbyterian church. They want you to do youth and children's ministries. Would you, would you, consider, would you consider doing it? Now, I didn't grow up Presbyterian, but God used 
the fact that, that then a few weeks later I get a call back from UPS saying, we don't know what happened. Your, your application got lost in the bottom of, stuck to the bottom of some folder, but, but we still have the opening. Will you come in and take the job? To which I had to say no. Because God had used the, 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 the bureaucratic blunder of, of some office worker to make me a Presbyterian. to really lead me and open a door for gospel ministry as I was studying in school for pastoral ministry, to, to open the door for me to step into a pastoral role that was a, a mentoring position, one that opened me to the possibilities of what it means to see God's sovereign hand at work in all the world. God's provision is, is throughout these chapters. The people have, have opposed the work, and yet all that they've accomplished in opposing the work of God, in opposing the people of God, is now, not only will the work continue, but who's going to pay for it? They are. King Darius says, oh, by the way, now that we've looked back at the records, uh, King Cyrus promised that this would all be paid for out of the royal treasury. Therefore, governor of Trans-Euphrates, you've got to raise enough taxes to pay for this work to be completed. See, the opponents to, the, to rebuilding only succeeding, succeeded in getting the work financed for the people of God. See, God is at work so that as we get to the end of chapter 6, we see the fulfillment, the completion of the temple. It's been 21 years since they laid the foundation stone. Opposition that whole time. And yet God has provided for his people. So in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, we read the good news. Chapter 6, verse 14, So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the command of, of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed. You see, God is providing for his church everything that they need. And even their, their response now, in, in verse 16 of, of chapter four of, of chapter six in Ezra, is a picture of God's great provision for them. What's the response of the people in, in 6:16? The people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. Despite the opposition, God had proven himself faithful. The people then bring the, the sacrifices, the blood offerings that need to be brought because of their sin. They see not only God's provision for, for the, the payment and the physical building of this place, but God's provision for their sins. And so the chapter ends with this great and glorious hope that now, once again, the Passover can be celebrated. The Passover, that, that celebration during the time of the Exodus, in which God provided for his people. They brought a lamb so that their firstborn would not be slain, that the angel of God bringing judgment against Egypt would pass over their houses. When the blood of the lamb was, was spread on the, the doorposts of the house, instead of a son, an animal's blood was shed. The sons were passed over by God's grace. And so the people of Israel in the Exodus were told, repeat this pattern every year as a reminder of the rescue that God provided. And yet it's not hard for us as Christians. 
as those who no longer bring bloody sacrifices into church. It's not hard for us to see how this Passover had an even bigger promise attached to it. See, the great provision of God in in the book of Ezra is not merely that the temple gets rebuilt. It's not merely that, that sacrifices are offered. The great provision of God in the book of Ezra is that God himself will provide the Passover sacrifice. And so we can think of the way in which Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the descendant of David, Jesus, the true Messiah, Jesus, the great King of Israel, we can, we can, we can picture how he is publicly introduced in John's Gospel. When John the Baptist is there, he sees Jesus coming toward him. And what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, God doesn't merely provide payment out of the treasuries of Trans-Euphrates province. God provides payment from heaven itself. The payment of his own son, so that the Apostle Paul will remind the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And just as Ezra was teaching the people that they needed to trust in God and obey God in the midst of opposition, that's the context of 1 Corinthians. That even when the world says, go ahead and do whatever you want, God tells us to live moral lives, to put aside sexual immorality. Why? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. God has provided everything the people need. God has provided everything you need. God has provided everything that we as a church need for the accomplishment of his purposes. And that's not saying merely that when you see the annual report and you, you see the good news in, in today's bulletin that, that we met budget, that's not what I'm, what I'm pointing to. Because the promises of God will stand whether faith church is here next Sunday or not. The promises of God are that his kingdom will last forever. And God will keep his promise for he has sent his son as our Savior. And so chapters 4, 5, and 6, this, the, the rebuilding of the temple, the opposition of the people of God, the provision of God in the face of opposition, it ends with the great celebration of the Passover, the celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And look back at the last verse that I read to us. Ezra chapter 6, verse 22, the, the final verse in this section. Because as we turn next week to chapter 7, we'll jump ahead generations in time. And so the summary for this first six chapters of Ezra's book is that the Lord had filled the people with joy. God himself filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that the king of Assyria assisted the people of God in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. God filled his people with joy. Because God provided everything they needed. Let me pray this morning for us. Father in heaven, for those that that hesitate to to trust in you, Lord, I pray that, that seeing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, they would trust in Jesus Christ alone. Not trusting in our own strength, not trusting in our own might, not trusting in our own power, but trusting in the work of Jesus Christ alone. Lord, give us the faith to believe. 
for our church. Give us gospel hope. A hope that's not rooted merely in the plans that we have made, but the promises that are ours through Jesus our Savior. The promise that your church will advance, that nothing can stop the advance of gospel hope. And so, Lord, even as we see opposition in our culture, even as we see opposition in our own hearts, Lord, let us cling to the promises that you are the God at work in our church, at work in your world, at work building your kingdom. Father, we give you praise, thanking you for the grace that is ours through Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, our sacrifice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.